Good morning, everyone. If you do not know who I am, my name is Tom Sylvie. I'm the associate pastor here at East, at East Shore Church, and I'm filling in this morning for Pastor John, who normally stands up here before us week in and week out. Uh, one of the things I also need you to know is we believe strongly in the power of ex expositional preaching, where the preacher, in this case today it's me, seeks to convey to you, to teach to you the main point of the passage and how it points us towards Christ. And here at this church, we do this by picking a book of the Bible and going verse by verse, section by section, thought for thought. And so we will be in the book of Mark today, continuing in our series, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. So if you do not have a Bible, there's going to be one in the seat in front of you that I would invite you to use. Uh, we're going to be on page 995 and 996 in that Bible. And if you don't have one, you can just keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. So if you go ahead and turn there with me, we're going to also keep in our tradition and we're going to stand as we read God's word. So if you're there, go ahead and stand. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Here we go. Let's read. Verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Then the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You may be seated. Let me pray before I begin. Father, as we are here gathered as your people, Lord, we all need your help this morning as we worship you. We all need just, we, we ask for an understanding mind to hear your words, to hear your gospel proclaimed to us. Remind us of your love and your grace this morning. Remind us that we are the church, the bride of Christ. Teach us what this means. 
we give ourselves to you this morning. We are yours. We love you. We need you this morning. Amen. Amen. So some of my, my, my best memories as being a pastor so far, I mean, definitely as many laughs, are performing weddings. Uh, in my career, I've performed two weddings, a Nepalese wedding and a Mexican wedding. I've yet to see an, an American wedding. So, and I remember neither of those weddings started on time. <laughs> and I, I remember one of them, I won't say which one, uh, it, was, it was supposed to start, I don't know when it was supposed to start, let's just say one. It was, if it was starting at one, I remember about five minutes till, and I walked up to the, the person and I said, so where's the bride and groom at? And he's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, we're just gonna start without them. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I mean, you know what, that's what they do. That's what we're gonna do, we're gonna start without them. And so, <laughs> you know what, you just do what you gotta do. Uh, but I have been to and been a part of many American weddings. And no matter the cultural context, they all have one main theme in common. It is a day of celebration. It is an event where friends and family from both sides, the bride and the groom, they're sitting together laughing, celebrating, feasting, making memories, all there to celebrate a union between one man and one woman as they vow to keep the marriage covenant before the Lord. Uh, it's, it's just such a wonderful time. It's a, such a wonderful gift to see. And we learn that from the Bible, that the individuals that are that day, as they're getting married, they were two flesh, two people, and then through the power of God, through this union, they become one. It's a profound mystery. And many of us in this room are married and would agree whenever I say that a healthy marriage is a wonderful gift from God. And it's hard work, but it is a gift. And I did a, I did a Google search on just uh, about the statement I'm going to make, and that is all cultures celebrate marriage. And so I did a quick Google search just seeing if the, the truth to that statement. And in the Google search, only one people group popped up. And it was the Na of Yunnan in Southwest China. And I went ahead and I clicked on the article and I read that. But even in reading this article, from everything I could tell, there is a recognition of a sexual partnership between a specific man and woman. It's distorted but it's there. They might not call it marriage, but the commitment and innate understanding of partnership is still prevalent in that culture that I found. So I will stand by my statement that cultures, all cultures are celebrating marriage, whether how distorted it may be, it doesn't matter, it's there. And in all these occasions, there is a joyful anticipation and celebration among these cultures for this event. Now the question is why is this the case? Well, I firmly believe we have a biblical precedent for this, and that is because within humanity itself, God has placed within us this institution of marriage. It is a part of being human. That is why we see it everywhere, all times, all places. 
It is what we would want to call a universal truth that the Bible speaks to. And the reason I also think he's done that is because this is a grace for humanity because marriage is pointing towards a greater marriage, a marriage that's going to last for all eternity, the marriage that takes place between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. You know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, 17th century theologian, he says this, the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all the immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart. We experience this wedding imagery throughout the Bible. The Song of Solomon is dedicated, this whole theme is dead, the, sorry, the whole theme of the Song of Solomon is dedicated to this wedding imagery. Ephesians 5.25, when you go to a wedding, you hear this verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you notice what Paul's doing in that verse. He gives this noun, the church, the pronoun her. And in that verse, why, does he do, why is he doing this? Because the church, this noun is a her, is the bride of Christ. And Paul is saying this, Husbands, you have an example of how to love your bride. And that example is to look how Jesus loved his. Follow it. 2 Corinthians 11.2 continues this theme of this wedding imagery. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. This is Paul speaking at the moment. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul is calling the church at Corinth to be the bride of Christ, to be spiritually pure, dedicated to Christ and the worship of Christ alone. And he's telling them, like, betrothed, you're being prepared for a wedding. Now, I know some of us in this room have had difficult marriages. Some of us have had divorces. Some of us have not been married at all. And marriages on this earth can be complicated. And some of them can be sad. But they are all temporary. No matter the experience, whether good or bad, a better marriage is on its way. An eternal jubilee is dawning and the advent of an abundant joy and festivity is approaching closely. Let's read Revelation 19.7 again. Let us rejoice and exult and give him, Christ, the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride, the church, has made herself ready. Wow. So why, why am I speaking so much about a wedding? What, what does this have to do with what we're going to talk about, what we've just read? answer is everything. What we've just read in, the, in this Mark, chapter 2, is a glimpse of what this marriage feast is going to be like. And so at this point, I'm going to have three points or three questions designed to get us to see how this text is pointing us towards the marriage of the Lamb. So three questions. 
I'm going to begin with the first. The first one is, who makes up the church, the bride of Christ? Well, if we're already looking in the context of the pa this passage of Scripture, you will notice in verse 14, we read about Jesus calling Matthew. He's a tax collector. He calls him to be one of his disciples. However, in this little, these few verses, it's a very brief uh, story. Matthew simply hears this call, stands up, and then leaves his profession and follows Christ. And then in verse 15, the setting switches. We were beside the sea, and now we're in a house. We're in Matthew's house specifically, which the rest of these verses is a feast. Okay? So the question now becomes is which person does our author, Mark, emphasize the most? Is he emphasizing a story about Matthew, or is he emphasizing a story about Jesus? We could make the argument that Mark is trying to emphasize Matthew, how he just hears, gets up, and follows him. I mean, we did just learn about the call. We're in his house. There's about to be a meal, so Matthew is hosting this meal. But I think something else is taking place in this text. The, the emphasis is being placed on Jesus. And who is hosting this meal is Jesus. Jesus is the host. Verse 14's purpose is to give us the context for verses 15 through 17. Mark's wants, Mark wants us to know whose house we're in and how we got there. He loves providing these details, as you, we will continue to see through the book of Mark. And in verse 15, the tax collectors and sinners are not reclining with Matthew, but they're reclining with Jesus. He is the host and the center of attention. Let me read William Lane. Um, this meal was an extension of the grace of God, an anticipation of the consummation when the Messiah will sit down with the sinners in the kingdom of God, an anticipation of a future feast, which will consist of redeemed sinners. So who is feasting with Jesus? Verse 16, sinners and tax collectors. Well, who are these groups? Well, sinners, you know, we can read sinners and we, we think, oh, that's you and I. But that's not what he's saying here. Sinners in this context is being used as a general and specific people. It is reference to a class of people which the Pharisee is deeming sinners. Okay, and sinners... It refers to the people where the Pharisees are like, you people, you sinners, this specific group, you have no regard for the law of God, for our oral tradition. You could care less. You're not following these rules. You're not even caring to try and follow these rules. Therefore, we don't want anything to do with you. And the sinners, their mindset is, you know what, Pharisees, you have all these rules and regulation. I'm just not doing it. I, it's not, I don't care. And so they've made their stand, and they've been labeled sinners. Okay? And Pharisees, the upper class, what do they do? They ostracize this group. And so now the sinners are outcasts in Jewish society. And then we have the tax collectors. They get a different designation, tax collectors simply. These were Jews who served Rome. And they were in charge of collecting taxes from the locals. And Rome did not care how much the local tax collectors collected. All they cared was that Rome got Rome's money. So if a tax collector was said, okay, 
Tom, you owe Rome $100. Well, the tax collector, it would be a very common thing for you to be like, hey, Tom, you owe $150. The $50 extra, where does, it, where does that money go? In the tax collector's pocket. And they would just make up the amounts, okay? And Rome didn't care. Rome was still getting paid, and they were happy. So tax collectors in the Jewish culture were, committed, were considered as equal to committing treason against the Jewish people. They were forsaken by Jews. In fact, you, I mean, you know, we often hear women in that culture, if you had two or three women, they could testify in court. Not so with tax collectors. Their testimony was worthless, even if you had a group, okay? They had betrayed their own people to work for the Roman Empire. So their families disowned them and their people disowned them. Those are the type of people Jesus is feasting with, outcasts, tax collectors, and sinners. Now we have to ask this question, why? Why this group? Why these groups? And I think the reason is because God wants to magnify his grace and mercy. He wants to give, he wants to see his grace and his mercy cherished most. To be glorified most. And you know who's going to do that? People in need. Look at verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When a medical student graduates and they finally become a doctor, what do they go out and do? Well, they want to go and put all of their education and skills into practice and heal people. And if they get hired by some chance to work at a hospital, a hospital of which never accepts any patients who are ever sick, well, the young, earnest doctor, he's going to get restless and leave. He's going to go and find the sick people to put his skills, his practice to use. He wants to be used. Well, the same is with Christ. Jesus has come with an immeasurable amount of grace at the ready, an abundance of mercy to distribute, and there within his very being is an overflowing fountain of love which he desires us to drink from. Jesus did not come to die for his gift of eternal life to be neglected, but to be cherished and exalted in. He has come to give this gift to people in which they will be comforted by this gift and they will take delight in this gift. And there is only one type of person that can fulfill that expectation, and that is a person who is honest with themselves. A person who is honest about their own sinfulness, who is aware of their constant need of a Savior. John Bunyan says, Nothing pleases Christ better than to give what he has away, than to bestow it upon the poor and needy. Are you struggling with sin right now? And if so, are you afraid to come before God because of your constant failure to sin? Fear not, for this is our Savior's specialty. He has come to wage the very war against sin and has won. Therefore, we need to run to him all the faster, cling to him all the more. Richard Sibbs, there is always more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. 
Do you find yourself routinely comparing yourself to others, hearing the stories of how God is using them, seeing all the good things that is taking place and happening around them, yet still wondering all the while, why? Why not me? Bringing yourself low, casting a self-inflicted guilt upon yourself. Such a burden only keeps you from coming boldly to God. And you need to take courage. For our Savior has appeared in the form of a man to empathize with each of us. To come alongside and remind each and every one of us of how cherished we are. How wanted we are in His kingdom. And, oh, and there's no need, no, no end to His comfort. Because he is, he is in the form of man, but He's also God. Infinite comfort. Take as much as you need. Perhaps you're also the person that likes to start things with such zeal, strength, and vigor. But quickly, through time, you're defeated and a lack of self-discipline. And at some point, you grow accustomed to the practice of starting and stopping, and you give up altogether trying to serve Him, and you settle for less. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is no disappointment or judgment on behalf of the Son of God. Because let, let me remind you once again, He has come to save sinners and sufferers not the self-righteous or the self-sufficient. He did not come even to help those who need help one or two times. He didn't even come to help those who only need help a hundred times. His well, the well of His grace is far too deep and far too wide to be of such little use. Drink from it. He has come to help those who have an infinite need, a continual supply of grace. So don't quit. In fact, don't even rely on your own strength nor your reserves. Save it because you don't even need it. You have Christ. So take up the mantle once again and begin to serve Him. He's there cheering for you. And whenever you fall again, and you will, in His delight, He will kneel before you to pick you up. Because that is what our Savior does. And he does it with joy and a smile. It's a beautiful thing to know that we have a patient Savior. So we need to, let me restate to get zero in, is who makes up the church? Jesus' bride. And we see in this context, it's made up of those who need him most. It's made up of the ones who know they are sinners and are in desperate need of divine grace. The ones who know that they deserve hell and they joyfully accept a merciful justifier. The ones who know that they are going to faithfully fall short and need a patient Redeemer. The church is made up of those who simply just don't want to live life in their own power, by their own wisdom, or simply by themselves but desire the eternal life-giving God Himself. It's none other than sinners and sufferers who make up the bride of Christ. That is why He's at this table. He wants to be there. He wants us as we are. And we're going to celebrate in eternity. So the, follow, the question is, is, have you responded to His grace, His call? Do you believe? that's going to lead us into the second question. And it's really, why join the church? And by me asking this question, why join the church, 
the local church, I'm not, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm not asking why join the local church, which I believe biblically you need to do. The question I'm asking when I say why join the church, I'm being a little bit more broad and I'm saying why believe in Christ? Because the moment you believe in Christ, you become a part of his bride. Okay, so when you believe, you become a part of the universal church, okay? And I have two answers to this question that we have in this text. We need to join the bride of Christ because there is healing and there is fellowship waiting. So I'm going to break this down. Let me go with the first answer because there's healing. We'll get the second part in a minute. Jesus, Jesus is a doctor, and he is by no means ill-equipped. Each one of us in this room are unique. There is only one of each of us, and there will never be one of us ever again. There will never be a Tom Sylvia in the future. There has never been me in the past, and there is only one me right now. However unique each one of us may be in that way, we are all suffering from the same disease, sin. And there is no sin in this room which Jesus Christ, our Lord, has not encountered before or has not considered. We are not unique in this way. Just as two people may have a common cold and different symptoms, the cure is the same regardless. The same goes for sin. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God and we have all sinned unto death and not one of us is righteous. Therefore, there is only one cure and that is the blood of the Lamb. So why? Why should you be included in the bride of Christ? And I'm going to venture to say there's no better answer than to say, come be washed by the blood of the Lamb and be healed. That's the, that's the best answer. And now I'm going to also say that the, the washing of sin is not the only type of healing that takes place, but it is certainly the foundation from which all other healings will take place, will occur. Are you mentally not well, physically impaired? Are you emotionally hurt and burdened? In Christ, there is healing for each one of those. Jesus is, settle, is not settling for his bride to be anything less than without blemish and spotless. He wants his bride to be perfect. And he is doing that. You can most certainly expect to be healed. Now, it may not come during your time on this earth. So I'm not saying that. But as the church, we do not place our hope on earth. Our hope is in a future. Our hope is in heaven. In the span of eternity, our lives on earth are shorter than the blink of an eye. And while during that time we may be temporarily bruised in all eternity, we will be without blemish covered in the praise of His glory. There is healing in His name. Let me look at the second part of my answer. Fellowship. Why join part of the body of Christ. There's fellowship. There's fellowship with Christ and there's fellowship with redeemed sinners. Now, I'm not going to focus on the fellowship with Christ. I'm going to focus in this part specifically on the fellowship with other believers. Okay, because what's interesting in our text right now is we have a meal and we don't get any of the names involved. In fact, we only know we're in Matthew's house because of the verse before it. Other than that, we don't get any names. We know Jesus' disciples are there, and we know all the names of the disciples because we're, giving that, we're given those names in the Gospels. 
Instead of names in this particular section, we're given labels. We're given labels such as tax collectors and sinners versus scribes and Pharisees. And honestly, imagine how freeing it is to be in the former rather than the latter. Tax collector and sinners, freedom. Imagine sitting at a dinner party and someone, you know, someone comes up to you and says, oh, you don't even know them. Someone comes up to you and he's like, oh, you're a sinner too. Nice to meet you. I'm Tom. <laughs> you don't have to hide who you are. <laughs> you're just like, that's right. I'm imperfect. I'm fallen. I don't need to pretend to be somebody I'm not. <laughs> and then at the end of the meal, guess what? They actually enjoyed your presence and company. And you didn't have to be somebody you didn't want to be. How free is that? You don't have to perform. You don't have to hide the fact that you make mistakes. <laughs> no mask is required because you're already known. I'm a sinner. Versus the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if you don't know much about them, they were strict. They, they were strict to the outward appearance of oneself. They had a law that they followed to a T. In fact, it was possible that if they made a mistake, an outward mistake, and it was seen, they could lose their status as Pharisees. Their peer group, their Pharisees, their scribes would shun them. They could lose all of that authority. So their whole life is a performance. Hypocrites. They walk around in a costume, a constant act. They're walking around as a fake. And you know what happens with that? When they sin in private or fall in private, unfortunately for them, what happens? They have nowhere to go. They're stuck to themselves. Their, their only option is to allow sin, that freedom, and to continue hardening their heart. That's a burden. They cannot confess their sins because they will be judged and forsaken by their peers. They have, no, they have no grace for themselves, nor do they have grace for anyone else. So they're not going to give it. They are trapped in their theatrical performance, walking around freely, but a prisoner behind invisible bars. Not so with the sinners. If we in the church fall short, then we have one another to carry us, to pick us back up, to share our burdens with. We don't expect perfection from one another. We expect to get to forgive one another. <laughs> what an amazing grace, the opportunity. You know, there are 59 one another commands in the New Testament that those in the church, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, are committed to obeying and working towards fulfilling. We're committed towards forgiving one another, being at peace with one another, honoring one another, accepting one another, loving one another, being patient with one another. We're committed to encouraging one another, to being kind and compassionate to one another, to serving one another, to confessing our sins to one another, to being hospitable towards one another, and I can give you 48 other commands that we're committed to, but you're getting the point. Do we do this perfectly? Absolutely not. In fact, we fail at this every week. But just because we fail, do we give up? Absolutely not. I want to challenge every believer in this room. 
I've printed a copy of all the one another's in Scripture. You have that page. And I'm doing this. You, you, it was in your bulletin. You should have all, every one of them. And my, my challenge to you is to read that. Read that for yourself. Read that amongst your family devotions. Read that in your HFG, HFG group and discuss how, how am I falling short of these commands? Where are we doing well? And allow yourself to be uh, challenged by those around you, challenged by your spouse. As part of our sanctification, as part of our commitment as being the bride and the body of Christ, we work hard to, be, to endeavor to become a safe place for everyone, for each one of us in this room. It is, we must never, ever grow weary of it because we all deserve it. Now, why should you believe and become a part of the body of the Christ, body of Christ? Because we are sinners and we know it and we are redeemed and healed by the blood that pour forth from the cross a people made new and committed to Christ to enjoying fellowship with one another for all eternity. No need for being fake in the church. So if you don't believe, then I beg you to believe and come and join his bride, his family. So in this text, we also have another question. It's going to be our final question for this morning is what does the church do? We know who makes up the church, sinners. We know that's who Christ wants. And we kind of see why the benefits of joining Christ for fellowship. Now, what do we do? What do we do while we're waiting for this wedding? And the answer is we wait and we worship with joy. Look with me at verses 18 through 22. We have moved from a dinner scene and but food is still at the center of attention and instead of feasting we have fasting which is abstaining from food first we were eating now we're abstaining and Jesus is approached with the question as to why none of his disciples ever fast and they're like why why because it's expected to fast. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. Even John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. But yet Jesus' disciples, they're eating. They're eating every day. <laughs> What's going on? There's even a command in the Bible to fast. Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. I'll read it. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. Now, we're re I'm reading from the ESV, and the little words, shall afflict yourselves, is you shall fast. You perhaps have a little subnote in your Bible, and at the bottom it will say, or shall fast. So afflicting yourself and shall fast are the same in this text. So there's the biblical command. And it's for forever, the command says, but yet Jesus' disciples are not fasting. So what is going on? Well, we need to answer this. To answer this, we need to understand what fasting represents. 
And in this culture, fasting represents a, it's a sobering time, a time in which is of mourning and repentance of sin. In general, sin in general, not necessarily a specific sin, but it's I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And during that time, it reminds how sinful we are and how good our God is. That's why we're fasting. And then when you're looking at the Old Testament command to fast that I just read, they're commanded to fast on a specific day. And that day is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is where their whole sins are offering up a sacrifice for their sins to be forgiven. Okay? Christ died on the Day of Atonement and our sins were truly forgiven. So with that context, let's look at verse 19. Jesus says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The bride, the church, is with her bridegroom. And that's not a sobering time. That's a time of celebration. That's a season to rejoice. Here I am with my bridegroom. We're going to celebrate because a wedding feast is coming. So the Day of Atonement is approaching near for this Jesus. Jesus is going to get up on that cross and he will die. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was symbolic. The Israelites, they put all their sins on the sacrifice, symbolically being cleansed when in the reality, none of their sins were cleansed. But there's coming a sacrifice, Christ himself. He's about to go on a cross where no longer it will be a symbolic sacrifice, but it will be a real and true as we said in Hebrews, a better sacrifice where the sins will be forgiven. So in the Old Testament, they were looking towards that day. And now while the bridegroom is there, they're celebrating. And when he dies, we will fast looking back at that day. A new day, a new atonement or new wine is coming which is what author means with the analogies in verse 21 and 22. The old is gone and the new has come. The church of the old has been waiting thousands of years for this day and now it is here. The disciples are living it. And now we are reaping the rewards and the benefit of it. So, fasting is meant to create a space for longing to remind us of our dependence and our heighten, to heighten our, intent, our anticipation and to bring a new awareness in our walk with Christ. And you know what? So that was Old Testament fasting. Do we still fast today in New Testament as believers time? We do. In fact, we see that here in this very verse. There's an expectation for Christians to fast. And not only is there an expectation in our, in our scripture to fast, but there's also an expectation in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it says, when the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. Well, let's read what we learn in the Sermon on the Mount. This is right between the command to pray and also the command not to lay your treasures in heaven. So I think it still applies. And verse 16, and when you fast, Matthew chapter 6, 16 through 18, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, Pharisees, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have, fat, they have received their reward. 
But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus is assuming Christians fast. It's our practice. Therefore, we do it. And fasting isn't a topic that we probably give a lot of attention to. And in fact, if I was to ask for a show of hands, don't raise hands, uh, how many have you all fasted in 2022? I'm going to say it's probably a small amount. And I could probably even say how many of you guys have fasted in the 2020s? And it's probably still a fall, small amount. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a bullet point application of what is fasting. I'm going to say, hopefully this will be a chance to encourage you to fast, okay? But before I go through this bullet point application, I want you also to know I'm speaking to myself as well, okay? So here we go, just I'm gonna list off some bullet points here about fasting. Fasting, first and foremost, is worship. And as I've already mentioned twice, is expected. So we need to know that. Fasting is worship and expecting. Fasting, in its broadest meaning, means to go without food. You, could, you still drink water during the fast, and it's just an abstaining from food. And you know what? Some in this room may no longer be able to do that. That's okay. That's okay. We're going to get there. Fasting is not like prayer. Prayer and scripture reading are essential to Christianity. Prayer, I've heard in scripture reading, is like breathing. I think it was Spurgeon. Here's my Spurgeon quote. What's more important, prayer or scripture reading? His response, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? You have to do both. That is a mark of a Christian. And fasting is not like this. I, I've thought of a, an analogy to continue with this, and this is where I got to. It might not be perfect, but fasting is like exercise, like going on a jog. It helps propel you forward. It helps move you towards Christ a little faster, keep you in shape. That's kind of where I was going with that. So it's not an ultimate need because the command isn't there. So when you look at the following question then is, okay, if fasting isn't like prayer, then how often do I need to fast? You're saying it's expected. What does this then look like? Well, when we look at the biblical examples of fasting throughout the scriptures, fasting is a response to a situation. I mean, I, I was tried to be exhaustive and I was looking and everything I was thinking of was always a response. Whether the situation was approaching or the situation just happened. I'll give you the example in David's life. What happened when David found out that King Saul died? He fasted as a response of hearing this news. Continuing with King David, what, 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 what happened with his sin in Bathsheba? The Lord said, I will take the child. And what did David do for a whole week? He fasted leading up to the event. When you look at even Jonah and the Ninevites, they're fasting because of, a, of what they were told and of an event that was coming. Fasting, I'll say it again, is a response to a situation. There you get kind of its solemnness to it, its heaviness to the practice. So how often should you fast? Follow the examples. When something hits you and it's hard, fast. 
I'm not going to bind your conscience because Scripture doesn't. So there, I'm not going to give you a every week or every two months or even a once a year. Scripture doesn't do it, neither will I. I'm just going to say the expectation is there. So do it. And I'm going to now, now address what if I can't? What if I can't fast? I'm going to say the Lord knows. The Lord knows that time has passed. There's plenty of grace. And I think it's okay. I think it's okay. And if you want to continue to practice the, the, the spiritual discipline and the idea of withholding from TV or internet, I say you're okay to do that. You're okay to do that, to observe the spirit of the discipline. How long should you fast? Well, again, in Scripture, we're given no timeline. We're just given the examples. So I'm just going to say fast for as long as you need. If it's only one day, well done. Fast for as long as you need. And then I'll just, what do you do? So how do you fast? Well, I've already said you, you abstain from food. Drink your water. Drink your water. But your primary focus isn't necessarily to abstain from food. It's to put your mind towards Christ. To surrender your whole attitude, your whole presence towards Christ. It's a practice that recalls what you have been called to and what you are called for. And when you get hungry, it's as simple as pray. Allow the little growls of the belly to call you to your, knee, to your knees to pray. Allow those moments of hunger to be able to reflect in you to say, I'm going to pause and I'm going to be still and I'm just going to be with my God. That is fasting. Extra prayer time, extra attention, extra intentionality. Okay, so as I come to a close, let me recap. There's a wedding approaching, and the bride of Christ gets to have this feast on the wedding day, the, 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 the day, the, oh my goodness, I messed it up, on the, uh, the final supper of the Lamb in heaven. We're going to experience that. And it's going to be between Christ and his redeemed sinners, who we will call saints. So why? Why become a part of the church? Why become and join, be a part of this festivity, this marriage supper? Because there is rich fellowship, not only with Christ, the omnipotent, infinite Savior, but also with one another. And we can be free to be us in Christ. What are we going to do until that wedding feast comes? Well, we're going to wait with anticipation and we're going to worship. And we're even going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Worship, anticipating a future feast. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for redeeming us. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have called us to be your bride. And Lord, you have cleansed us, not with water, but with your blood. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness and taking us as sinners and changing us into saints. We love you, Lord. Amen.